You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible readings are taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, and Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Uh, I'll be reading from the CSB version. Uh, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Isaiah 40 Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, When the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, 
but the word of our God remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Well, friends, if you um, haven't been with us the last few weeks or just want to get up to speed, we are in the middle of a series uh, where we're asking this one big question, what on earth am I here for? Uh, What is the mission of God? What is the task that he has given us as Christians? And how does he want us to spend our whole lives? That relates to every single one of us. And if you're not a Christian here, what a great series to be here for as you get to look in and see what makes Christians tick. Why are they the way that they are? That's our task today. Though, Though I wonder which one of us wasn't gripped by the tragedy of the Titan sub last month. I was watching uh, it on the news almost every moment. On the 18th of June, the Titan set out uh, on a journey. Five passengers sought to explore the wreckage of the Titanic at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. But as that sub descended, the Titan suddenly lost all contact with the surface. A search and rescue operation very quickly commenced, but our worst fears were realized. It at least seems that when the sub was about 12,000 feet below sea level, it it collapsed under the weight of the ocean and suffered what people have now called a catastrophic implosion. All five passengers died instantly. It's a terrible tragedy, isn't it? It gripped our world as all of us waited with bated breath to see what would happen. What what really stood out to me throughout that whole episode was, was the kind of tragic irony, and it was tragic, when experts were saying, at least it was a catastrophic implosion. At least it was a catastrophic implosion, because that means that it would have been all over in just about 40 milliseconds. It's a mercy, ironically, that those five passengers wouldn't even have realized what was happening. I shudder at the thought, but imagine the alternative for a moment. Imagine being one of those five passengers in that alternative parallel universe where the Titan is sitting at the bottom of the sea without any way of calling for help. It had just 96 hours of breathable air after which the passengers would have run out of oxygen. Just imagine for a moment being one of those passengers trapped at the ocean floor, unable to call for help with the clock Counting down. It's, it's an absolutely terrifying thought, isn't it? You are literally without help and you are literally without hope and your only possible chance of survival is if someone from the outside comes to save you. And all you can do in that moment is sit there, pray and wait for a saviour. Friends, it's a tragic picture. We hate to think about it, but it is a picture of Israel's predicament right throughout the Bible. We saw last week, didn't we, in Isaiah? God called Israel to be this picture of Eden, a model of the perfect world to come, a kingdom where all the Lego pieces of creation are put together in the right way. 
into this city of perfect justice. And Israel's mission was to extend the worship of God to the ends of the earth. It was to fill the earth with the glory of God. Friends, what a mission. What a privilege. This was meant to be the trip of a lifetime. But just like the Titan, what started as a dream turned into a nightmare. Israel didn't fill the earth with God's glory. No, it flooded itself with the world's sin. It opened the gates to abuse, injustice, exploitation, and greed, all of which filled the city of Jerusalem. Israel stopped worshipping the Lord, and it abandoned him like a runaway child. It's, It's a horrific thought, but in many ways, Israel suffered a catastrophic implosion under the weight of its own sin. And if you want to see what the consequences are, here it is. For the next 400 years, Israel was overrun by empire after empire after empire. First the Persians, then the Hellenists, then the Roman Empire. Forget about expanding the temple of God into the world. No, now the world has just invaded the temple. And now by the end of the Old Testament, here's Israel's situation. They're sitting at the bottom of the sea, trapped by their own sin. And unless someone from the outside saves them, they deserve and are destined for judgment. It's a helpless situation, as tragic as that alternate reality of the Titan sub sitting at the bottom of the ocean. All they can do is wait for a saviour. And can I say, if you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, If you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're not someone who follows Jesus, I want you to know that that picture of that Titan sub, that picture of Israel's predicament, is actually a picture of all of our lives as well. You see, just like Israel, all of us have said no to living with Jesus as the king of our lives. We would much rather live our lives on our terms. We've rejected God from having not just a place, but having the center place, the throne of our hearts. We haven't made Jesus our supreme treasure. We haven't made the Lord Jesus our greatest joy. All of us live for our own glory, don't we? All of us are motivated by that fundamental assumption of economics, self-interest. And then we use and abuse each other within lawful means, at least, to advance our own ends. Just like Israel, we are sitting at the bottom of the sea, trapped by our own sin. And unless someone from the outside comes to save us, just like Israel, we deserve and are destined for judgment. All we can do is wait for a second. If you're here and you are a Christian, as I assume and know most of us are, I want you to know in this, mission, in this series, as we think about the mission of God, before we can understand our rescue mission to the world, we need to understand God's rescue mission to us. So I want us to imagine, I want, us to ta- I want to take us to that awful place of imagining that tragic alternate reality, that alternate reality in which the Titan is sitting at the bottom of the sea. I want you to imagine being one of those five passengers, the air is running thin, the time is running out. But imagine in that moment, in that very moment, just about when you're about to give up all hope, the dashboard of the sub lights up. And it just shows three words. We've found you. We've found you. My gosh, how would you feel in that moment? Well, wouldn't you feel so overjoyed? 
When you want to scream with excitement, if you, if you read those three words in that position of helplessness, you'd think, there's hope. Friends, can I say that's exactly what Israel would have felt when they read the, when they read the uh, words of verse 1 of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And they're thinking, finally. After 400 years of waiting, failing, and a catastrophic implosion of sin, this is the moment that everything changes. That word gospel, as I said, it literally means good news. And gosh, it's been a long time since you've had that. But I want you to notice, this isn't just any good news, right? No, this is good news of victory. It's good news of salvation. It's the moment, if you've seen it in a movie, right, that, that messenger comes on horseback into the city. He returns from the battlefield and he declares to all the citizens of the city, our king has destroyed the enemy. There's victory. We're safe. Our king has extended the borders of his kingdom. This is good news of salvation and victory. It's good news that God's mission is being accomplished. It's good news that even though you and I failed to expand Eden, God himself is doing it. It's good news that despite our failure, God's reign will grow and his glory will fill the earth. It's good news that God will be king over every nation and he's bringing it all about through one name and that, na- that man's name is Jesus. Uh, all names have some meaning, don't they? I suspect, I could be wrong, but you know, I think most names have a meaning. The name Adam, for example, comes from the Hebrew word for dirt. I was uh, preaching at a church camp recently and one of the young uh, Korean kids there referred to me as Pastor Dirt. I think that was not very respectful. Um, our church has too many Joshuas. In, I think, if you put up your hand, put, if your name's Josh, Joshua, how many of you? One, two, Josh Wong, Josh Chook, Josh Lin. Yes, we've got Josh over there as well. We've got any number of Joshes. Do you know what the name Joshua means? Any of you? Well, you just take it because it's a great name that your mom's given you, Right? It means the Lord saves. The Lord, what a great name. I brought sin into the world. You saved it, right? Like, uh, But do you know what Joshua also means? Joshua is just another name for Jesus. Well, Jesus is just another name for Joshua. Now, don't go around asking people to call you Jesus, but they're the same name. And they both mean the Lord saves. Imagine getting the message, we've found you, and the name of your rescue ship is the Lord saves. You know, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here and you want to know why are Christians the way they are, what's Jesus all about? It's easy, right? The answer is right there in his name. The Lord saves. That's his mission to save us out of the sea of our sin. He came all the way from heaven to earth to find you and to bring you to the surface, to bring you into his kingdom, to bring you into that new Eden, to bring you into a world of perfect justice and love, we've found you. What great news is that? And then in verses 2 to 8, then another message comes through on the dashboard. Here it is. It's no longer we've found you. Now it says, we're on our way. 
we're on our way. It can be hard to trust a promise, can't it? We've all had people make and break promises to us. And if we're honest, we've all made and broken promises to others, haven't we? But just think about the power of a promise, right? If promises are kept, a promise can control the future. Have you realized that? A promise can control the future. Think about it. When a man and a woman promise to love and cherish one another as long as they both shall live, here's what they're really promising. In 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time, whoever you are, whoever I am, whatever life might throw at us, whatever might change in our life, here's a promise. I'll still be there. I'll still love you. I'll still cherish you. A a promise can control the future. And yet we all know that life is hard. And there will be times when promises, just like those marriage vows, will be tested. Moments where they'll be broken. Even moments when they'll be betrayed. And in that moment of betrayal, the only thing that will keep the marriage together are those two words. I will. But here's the question. If a man is unfaithful to his wife, will she keep her promise to him even when she doesn't have to? Or, if a woman is unfaithful to her husband, will he keep his promise to her even when he doesn't have to? And the question for us is this. Will God keep his promise to us even when he doesn't have to? You see, there are at least two dynamics that run throughout the Old Testament, right? Two dynamics. Firstly, Israel is constantly breaking its promises to God. It's just this slow motion train wreck and Groundhog Day put together over and over and over again. The prophet Hosea calls Israel an unfaithful spouse who constantly cheats on God. I'm so thankful one of the best parts of my job is that I get to officiate weddings and see marriages flourish. And if you're married, you might maybe just think of your marriage as kind of heaven on earth, this almost Edenic relationship, maybe. God's marriage to Israel must be a living hell because she breaks her promises, she betrays her Lord, and she breaks his heart over and over and over again. Let me ask, if God was your friend and his wife was constantly cheating on him, what would you tell him to do to her? Or if you had a friend whose husband was constantly being unfaithful to her, what would you tell her to do in relation to that marriage or that relationship? What would you tell God to do to us? I want you to hear God's heart in Hosea 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? How can I judge you? How can I let you go? How can I divorce you? How can I leave you? I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. You see, here's the thing, right? Israel's constantly breaking his promises to God. But here's the second dynamic throughout the Old Testament. God continually keeps his promises to us. 
That doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you, right, in Mark, right, the last time that Israel had heard any good news was all the way back in Isaiah 40, when God had made an earlier promise. He promised to save his people out of exile in Babylon. And he wouldn't just send an ambassador, an army, a representative of some sort. No, he'd do more than that. God said he himself will come and bring his people home. I'm going to come for you. And here's how you'll know that I'm keeping my promise. Here's how you'll know that I'm on my way. When you see my signal. It's like the rescue boats. If you've seen the Titanic released at a very young age, uh, the, 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 boat, the rescue boats come and they shoot a flare into the sky and the, in the wreckage of the Titanic to tell the survivors we're on our way. And now when Israel sees that flare, verse 3 of Mark, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, then they'll know that God is keeping his promise. God says, I'm on my way. But here's the other thing, right? People make promises to us once off and then forget them. If you want to know what the Old Testament is, it's God constantly making a promise over and over and over again. He didn't stop in Isaiah. He made another promise at the end of Malachi. In Malachi 3, God promises this, I'm going to come and bring in a world of perfect justice. It'll be a whole new world. I'm going to right every wrong. I'm going to bring justice to those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. Can you see what God is saying? He's saying, I'm going to promise in Isaiah to bring you home, and I'm going to promise to make a new home for you. And that world will be a world and a home where abuse, exploitation, and injustice are no more. I'm going to fill the earth with justice and glory. I'm going to bring Eden back. And just like I promised a signal in Isaiah, in Malachi 3, God says, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Friends, when you put these promises together, can you see what God's saying, right? He's saying, Israel, people of God, you and me, even though you've cheated on me time and time and time again, I'm going to keep my promise to remain faithful to you. I'm going to come and personally bring you home. And I'm going to bring you home into a world of perfect justice and love. Don't believe me? Look out for my sign. Look out for my signal. Look out for my messenger. Look out for John the Baptist. That's what Mark 1 is all about, verses 2 and 3. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah and Malachi. He comes in verse 7 dressed like a prophet of old. And he calls Israel to answer God's promise in exactly the same way that Malachi said 400 years earlier. Repent. Malachi said, return to me and I'll return to you. Now John comes and proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I wonder what you think of when you hear that word repent. The word repent has fallen on hard times. It's got a lot of baggage, doesn't it? Uh, when I used to have a real job, uh, I'd get off the train at uh, Southern Cross Station. I'd walk down and there's always this man who would stand on a milk crate, screaming for everyone to repent. But you always had this nagging sense that he didn't quite want you to, right? What does repent mean? All it means is to turn around, to change your mind, to come home. 
That's all that is God is asking Israel to do. It's all that he's asking us to do. Come home. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a standing invitation. God is saying you're, you're trapped at the bottom of the ocean of your own sin and you have no way out. And God says, even though you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to stay faithful to you. Even though you don't want to live with me, I want to take you home. I promise you that I'd come and bring you out of the sea of sin. I promise that I'd come and bring you into this Edenic marriage of justice and love. Can't you see what God is saying? I made that promise to you through Isaiah. I made that promise to you through Malachi. I made that promise to you through John the Baptist. And I'm keeping that promise to you in Jesus. I am coming to you. Will you come home to me? It's horrifying to think that even if a rescue ship could have found the Titan, it probably wouldn't have been able to save it. You see, to hoist that sub from the ocean floor all the way back up to the surface and to do it within the time left on the oxygen meter, the, probably the most tragic and heartbreaking thing is we might have been able to find them, but we probably wouldn't have been able to save them. But imagine then that the Titan receives this message, we can save you. We can do it. We're able. You see, that was the problem for uh, Israel throughout the Old Testament. Every king that they trusted was never able to save them. Even the best of kings wasn't good enough. Because no matter how good the king was, he was still a man, still a human being, still stuck in the same sub as us at the bottom of the sea. You see, the passengers on the Titan couldn't save themselves. They needed someone from the outside. So did Israel, and so do we. We need someone who, in the words of John, is more powerful than us. And that's what we see, right? In verses 9 to 13, Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. And what does God the Father say? You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, just think about it. Adam was God's first son. He was created in God's image as a son who bears his father's likeness. And yet Adam failed to, to succeed in his father's mission. He didn't extend the worship of God to the ends of the earth. He catastrophically imploded this world into sin. I don't want the name Adam. I love my parents. Bad name choice. I failed. Jesus succeeded. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's mission and he didn't condemn this world to sin like I did. No, he saved it. Jesus is the better and perfect Adam. But can you see he's also the better and perfect Israel? In verses 12 and 13, Jesus is driven into the wilderness and there he is tempted for 40 days just like Israel was tempted for 40 years. And yet again, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He did not implode under the weight of temptation. You, you see, friends, I want you to know this, right? Jesus can bear the sin of our souls. Jesus can bear the sin of our world. I don't know about you, but um, I'd like to think I'm a pretty trusting person. 
Now, you know whenever someone says that, it means that they're not trusting at all, right? It's the person who goes, I'm a reasonable man, before they just be unreasonable. I'm a very patient person. Uh, so I like to think I trust people, but here's the reality. I don't really trust people's promises. Um, and it's not because I think people are ill-intentioned. I think most people are quite nice. I think most people mean well. I just think most people can't keep their promises. I know I can't keep my promises. So someone says to me, oh, Adam, I'll be there for you. I'm like, will you? I don't think you will. You want to be, but you can't. I'm a grateful man. <laughs> I say something to myself like this. Look, I'm not going to trust their promise because no one can help me but me. I'm the only one who can, I, I can really rely on, right? So I'm not going to trust anyone else's promise. I'll just trust myself. It's stupid, right? Because just like the kings of Israel and every other person I don't trust, I'm stuck in the same sub at the bottom of the ocean. What makes me think that I am more able than someone else to save myself? No, just like Israel, I need some from, someone from the outside to save me. We need someone who is more powerful than us. We need someone whose name is Jesus. We need someone whose name means the Lord saves. Friends, that isn't just a platitude, it's a promise. God has not made a promise to you that he cannot keep. He can save you from anything. He can save you from the worst sin you've ever committed. He can save you from the most shameful acts that haunts you to this day. You know the one I'm talking about. He can save you from the sin for which you cannot even forgive yourself. He is unlike anyone else. For where everyone else will fail us, my cynicism is partially right. Jesus is the better Adam. He is the better Israel. He is the Lord who can save. He can bear your sin no matter how great it might be. Finally, Imagine receiving this simple message as you look out the porthole. We're here. We're here. And in that moment, you go, wow, after all those messages, they've finally come good on their promise. You look at the oxygen meter is going down and you go, they made it just in the nick of time. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Remember from Genesis 1, what is the kingdom of God? It's the Garden of Eden, the kingdom of God, the temple of the Lord. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's not just saying, I'm bringing God to you. He, he's saying, I'm bringing God's garden to you, God's temple to you, God's kingdom to you. I'm bringing not just you home, I'm bringing home to you. I'm, going to hear, I'm, going, I'm here to keep my promise to bring you home. And I'm going to make, here's how I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to make this whole world everything that Eden was always meant to be. I'm going to make this whole world a world of righteousness and freedom, a world of forgiveness and joy, a world of justice and love. This whole world that you and I live in right now, beautiful yet broken, Jesus says, I'm going to repair it all. It'll be a world without depression. Disaster, disease, or death. And if you fast forward and look over the next few chapters of Mark's gospel, you'll catch glimpses of that kingdom. You'll see that Eden, the world that Jesus is bringing to earth. Can, can, I, can I show you what that world is like? 
Can I ask you to imagine in your minds just for a moment, what if a world was really like this? This is the world that Jesus is bringing in. It's a world where the forces of darkness and evil are expelled. A world where sickness and fevers are healed. A world where every kind of impurity is cleansed, guilt is forgiven, fear is dispelled, and shame is covered. It's a world that's upside down, but also the right way up. A world where the least and lowly are esteemed, where the weak and powerless are cared for, where the poor and needy are provided with every good thing. Just imagine it for a moment. This new kingdom will be an Edenic earth where the lame will walk, the blind will see, the hungry are fed, the forces of nature are stilled. It'll be a world where death is defeated and we will live with God and each other forever. It'll be a world without cancer, a world without dementia, a world without disability, a world without heartbreak, a world without weeping, a world without crying. A world without pain. That's the world that God is bringing in. That's the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. That's the Eden he is replanting right across our world. I am a cynic. And so the next question that always comes is this. Then where is it, God? Where is it? I mean, God, if you really hate suffering, Jesus, if you really wept at the death of your friend, why do we still suffer? If Jesus really came all the way from heaven to earth to fulfill that promise and to save us from the effects of sin in our world, why do we still fall sick? Why does illness still afflict our bodies? Why do we still die? Why would God show us a picture of the kingdom, but not yet make it a reality? If God's kingdom is meant to be heaven on earth, why does our world, why does my life feel like a living hell? I want to close by taking you to an encounter with Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Jesus comes home to Capernaum. He finds a crowd gathered in his home. All these people have come to Jesus because they want something. They want, like all of us, a physical healing. And among that crowd is a paraplegic, a man who cannot make his way to Jesus. If there ever was someone whose life was stuck at the bottom of a sea who cannot help himself, here it is. Tell you what, he has the four best mates in the world. They carry him up to the roof of the house. They destroy Jesus' house with home and contents insurance, right? It's just gone. The roof is gone. And they they lay him down in front of our Lord. They want a physical healing. But can you see what Jesus says in verse 5? He looks at this paraplegic man lying in front of him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you've been around church for any time, you'll go, wow. Isn't that beautiful? If you're normal, you'll go, isn't that cruel? 
isn't it? It is, it's cruel, isn't it? It's heartless. Here is a paraplegic man lying in front of you, pleading for a physical healing. And what do you say? Your sins are forgiven you? That isn't loving. If your kingdom is one where disability should be but a distant echo, why not heal this man? It almost sounds cruel what Jesus is saying, isn't it? Unless we need a deeper healing. Look at what Jesus asks in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? And then in verse 12, look what happens. The man, he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. I want you to see, friends, in the end, Jesus does heal physically, the paraplegic. He does do it. He does care about his physical body. He does care about our physical bodies. He does care about our sicknesses in life. But Jesus starts with the deeper healing that all of us need. You see, more than any sickness, disability or disease, what we need most is we need to be forgiven Forgiveness is hard to find in our world today, isn't it? A man called Steve McAlpine, he writes of a school counsellor who says that the three biggest questions for young Australians today are these. The three biggest questions. The first two, predictable. The last one, surprising. Three questions that every young Australian kid is asking. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? Number three, how can I be forgiven? The three biggest questions, identity, purpose, and forgiveness. Why? Well, we live in a world where one mistake captured online can cancel us in an instant and haunt us for a lifetime. All of us, need to be, all of us have hurt someone, haven't we? All of us need to be forgiven by someone. But what Jesus says is the one person we most need to be forgiven by is God. Because, because God created us to be in that loving relationship with him. He created us for this perfect world. He's given us a wonderful, beautiful world. But what did we do? Time and time again, just like Israel, we broke his promise and we broke his heart. Remember I asked that question, if God was your friend whose spouse was cheating on him, what would you say that he should do? Would you say, forgive him? How could we not need to be forgiven by God? You see, friends, forgiveness means to cancel a debt. So when I forgive someone, I'm choosing personally to pay the debt that someone else owes me. We began this sermon by saying that the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And now we end this sermon by saying how. How does Jesus save us? He saves us by forgiving us. He saves us by paying the debt that we owe to him. He saves us by paying that debt at the cost of his own life. Jesus descended to the ocean floor of our sin. He found us in that helpless state and he saved us by taking our place at the bottom of the sea. Jesus allowed himself to be crushed by the weight of our sin so that we might be forgiven and rise to the surface of new life. Friends, I want you to know that whatever the physical healing we rightly long for, that is the deeper healing that all of us need. We need to be forgiven. Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked, why did you give up being a doctor 
to become a preacher? It's a good question, isn't it? Too many lawyers have gone into ministry. We need a few more doctors. Well, here's the reason. This is what he said. We spend, we but spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls. They promised grand things. Then they got better and back to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin and I decided that I would do no more of it. I want to heal souls. Please do not mishear me. Firstly, if you're a doctor, you are doing important work. We love you dearly. And secondly, do not mishear me. God cares more about your physical sickness than you could ever imagine. If you struggle with chronic illness, pain, disability, if you hate and grieve death, I want you to know that Jesus promises to one day come and make all things new. And that includes these fallen, broken bodies. But I want you to know where he starts. He starts with the deeper healing that all of us need. He starts with our forgiveness. And here's the assurance, friends, right? All of us who are forgiven today will be healed in eternity. We will. We will live in that new Eden with Jesus as our king, with resurrection bodies, free of sickness, free of illness, and free of despair. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, here's what you need to know more than anything else. What you need more than anything else is not a healthier body, good though that is. What all of us need is a forgiven soul. I want you to know that Jesus loves you so much. That he set out on the rescue mission of history to do just that. To forgive you. To die for you. All so that he can bring you home. And all you have to do for God to take you home is to come home is to say sorry for breaking our promises and to say sorry for breaking his heart and then to say thank you for keeping your promise to me even when I didn't keep it to you. All you have to do is come home. And if you do, though we may die, yet we will live. And our lives and the epitaph of our lives will read these words. Forgiven today, healed tomorrow, with Jesus forever. Can I pray? Gracious God, with all of us who don't know you, for those of us who feel stuck at the bottom of the sea of our own sin, we are sorry. We are sorry, God, for breaking your heart. We are sorry for breaking our promises. But thank you for keeping your promises to us even when we didn't keep ours to you. Help us turn to you and see in your son, the Lord Jesus, the savior of our souls, the prince of our salvation. Jesus, the Lord who saves, in whose name we pray. Amen.